Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We are here today, Melissa, Bridger, and myself, to talk about chapter five in Shapiro's text. So we're going to, you know, kind of keep going with our plan and working through this material and honoring what the text teaches us while also learning like how to make that individualized and applicable to the population that you serve. So Today, we're going to get into looking at preparation and assessment, which um, could sometimes feel like it's just, it is what it is. There's these questions you ask and you get the answers and you move on. It's a short phase. It's a short piece. But we want to get into maybe more of the technical pieces of that and see like the impact of each question and assessment um, and how we can learn to modify that to meet to where our clients are at. But before we jump in there, I do want to just kind of carve out a little space for us to mention our EMDR certification process. Those of you who are trained and maybe interested in becoming certified in EMDR, we have built an entire course around that that includes a lot of discussions like what you'll hear today, uh, where we break down each of the eight phases and find the most like fundamental components of that phase so that we understand what its purpose is, what it's doing, therefore how we can modify it and how much flexibility each phase actually has. So um, we all three lead them. Bridger and Melissa, I don't know if you want to add in any pieces about the certification groups, but we're all three consultants for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the um, things about doing a certification process that I love to highlight is that And the course that we have is built to have the benefits of both group time and individual time. Um, So there's, you know, 10 hours where you're with a a group of people and we get to learn from each other and hear each other's examples and stories. And then there's also 10 hours of one-on-one time. And so that's really an opportunity to go in deep on your own cases and make sure that you're getting support for your specific clinical context, because there's a lot of variety in how we all practice and what our situations are. So certification is a time where we can get into the nitty gritty of it all. Yeah, for me, I I hear so often that one of the big takeaways for consultees is that the certification process um, really helps them feel more confident in their use and specifically, it feels more authentic to them, EMDR in their in their therapeutic approach. Um, so if, even if you've been basic trained and you haven't felt like you want to pursue certification or, or something like that, um, really EMDR certification through beyond, I think just invites so much, um, uh, opportunity to, um, really individualize that practice and personalize it for your, uh, population and the people that you serve. Um, so it's really, I think a a meaningful experience for people. Oh, another like fun bonus thing of certification is that uh, for as long as you're in the certification program, you get uh, free access to drop in with Beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means that you know if you pick one of us to do your uh, certification program with, you actually get access to all of us for all of those months. <laughs> 
Because each of us do a 90-minute call once a month on drop-in uh, with Beyond. And as part of certification, you get to come to any of those that you can live. You also get access to all of the recordings after the fact. And you don't have to do certification in order to become a member and subscribe to drop-in with Beyond. So um, you can certainly do that separately. But if you do uh, do the certification program, that's a, a fun bonus. So you get to hang out with all of us. Okay, let's get into the... The chapter. <clears throat> what did you guys? I think even just first, like high level, what um, feelings or reflections came up just about like the material that's presented in this chapter and how Shapiro goes about talking about it. Yeah. Well, so I think there's kind of a couple of pieces that maybe I want to use as a frame. Um, you know, one that you highlighted, Bridger, right before we were talking, which. This chapter kind of represents a shift in the book from kind of high theory into now we're talking about the very practical, the, the details of the how-to. Um, and then another one was uh, something, Jen, that you highlighted, which is the difference between preparation and resourcing in general and then target-specific prep. So if we could kind of talk about both of those things for a second, I think they're very useful frames for this conversation. I totally agree. Preparation perhaps specifically uh, for me is um, something that needs to be specified of what we're really talking about. Um, I think in our last episode, we covered some of the ideas around what uh, assessment or evaluation for readiness looks like. And that can be more of a general kind of preparation um, as well as developing therapeutic rapport, um, learning client history, really going into what might be uh, a process of discerning collaboratively with the client, what EMDR is going to look like for them in their context and story. And I know for myself, as well as many people that I've talked to, um, it, it it's not um, the decision of, okay, every single client I see, I'm going to do EMDR with, and I'm going to do EMDR with them the same exact way. It's more open and dynamic and collaborative uh, than that. For some people on the spectrum, it is more. I do EMDR, and so you're gonna you're gonna come to me, and we're gonna put EMDR in there somewhere. Um, and so wherever you are on that spectrum, preparation in the more general sense is gonna look different. You're you know you're already thinking of how to um, explain AIP and uh, kind of contextualizing the origin of their symptoms or presentation. And in some way saying, you know, there's a tool that we can use for that, the tool being EMDR. But when we look at this chapter, chapter five in the in the text, it, she's talking about preparation for actually doing bilateral simulation, doing target processing, sequencing, et cetera. So it's kind of a shift. It's like preparation two or B <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in the EMDR language. Um, and when we take that... Um, as the context for the discussion, I think we're kind of zooming in uh, to, okay, we've already in some way determined that EMDR is the tool that we're going to use to work through this client's presentation. And so that in some way kind of uh, orients us in the way we're going to talk to the client about what's to come. Um, so resourcing, yes, is a part of this, but we're probably not going to talk a lot about resourcing in this episode, even though for us in our culture, preparation means resourcing. Um, and so does reprocessing in some ways. Um, but that, that was one of the big shifts for me that I'm kind of naming it for myself so that I don't feel the burden of like, yeah, but what about resourcing? <laughs> like, yeah. um, but just to like, let us kind of get into the idea of we've already determined EMDR is the process. We're already working to establish that therapeutic rapport, evaluating resource needs, and hopefully having already kind of worked to develop some of those resources. And so now we're kind of zooming in on the idea of where our targets are at, what type of material might come up and uh, doing preparation and assessment in that way. You know, it makes me think of this, um, amongst trainers in the field, there's like an argument of, is it eight phases? Phase one is history taking, treatment planning, case conceptualization, and phase two is resourcing, or do we flip-flop those? Do we actually need to start in resourcing? And what I really appreciate about this breakdown of it is like, yes, resourcing 
comes first. And that is actually always happening right alongside treatment planning. But preparation and assessment are specific to a target and starting that target into the desensitization process. So I think uh, the lingo is more like we talk about, oh, preparation and resourcing. We like put those two together when we're talking often, but it makes so much more sense in my mind to say, no, it's resourcing and it's preparation and assessment. Yeah. Because that changes like the things we're talking about in preparation aren't actually resources for the client. They're preparing them to have everything they need, all the knowledge, all the support in order to go directly into a target to desensitize. Yeah, I think it's useful to kind of imagine the different questions that we're asking at the different um, points along the the preparation process. You know, Bridger, you said like it's you know preparation one and preparation two. I think there might even be more than that actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, what I feel is like we we first ask the question: Are we ready for EMDR? And when I say that, what I mean is, are we ready to even start asking those kinds of history taking questions that might take us into the affect of their trauma history? And so there's a round of preparation that's just focused on the question of, are we ready for EMDR? And then there's a question of, are we ready for a target, like any target, right? <laughs> um, then there's a question of, are we ready for this target? And then I think there's a, a next question of, are we ready for this target today? Like right here in this room, in this moment. And preparation like hits all of those questions and we're going to answer it differently depending on kind of what point we are in that process. I feel like this chapter in combining preparation with assessment is really kind of aimed at maybe those last two of are we ready for this target and are we ready for this target today? Like are we really ready to move in and and do the work of phase four um, because that's what phase three is always getting ready for. And so I think it's just so much more nuanced and helpful to think about the many layers and many steps of preparation that we go through. Within that, <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, that kind of teed us up well to um, go into the, the content of the chapter. Um, and I like on 114 in, in my text, um, there's a subheading that says adopting a clinical stance. And I think that's Francine's way of talking about orienting from this more general developing therapeutic rapport to putting on the EMDR kind of structure and saying, okay, now we're going to do things in a very intentional way to facilitate the EMDR process uh, in, in more of a particular sense. From there, it goes into forming a bond with the client and you feel this momentum pushing towards reprocessing. Like everything is kind of in service of developing that readiness and technical awareness in the client and therapist to begin that process. Yeah. There is a quote that I want to highlight in that section on forming a bond with a client that uh, for us is on page 114, where Shapiro is talking about what building rapport really means. And she says that attaining this level of rapport may take many months with some clients. For others, it will be a matter of one or two sessions. And there's not any discussion right here of the, the wide variety <laughs> of presentations, but there is very clear acknowledgement that there are many clients with whom we're going to be in phases of preparation um, for many months, right? And many months could be three, it could also be 18, right? Um, and so really acknowledging that this phase is one of the spots in the EMDR process that has wide variety of how fast we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So go ahead, Jen. No, I, I'm going to go on a soapbox. So you go ahead and then. <laughs> is the soapbox particular to what Melissa just said? Oh, it's I not. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I, I um, just after that, I'm going to read this kind of in full because it answers a question I get a lot um, in um, a certification consultation. Um, so I'll read a little bit of a longer section here, but the clinician should make sure that the client understands the importance during the between sessions of the truth-telling agreements. If the client falsely informs the clinician that the emotional disturbance is reduced and in parentheses, she says, in order to, quote unquote, do it right, to please the therapist, or perhaps to end the treatment, in parentheses, there's a good chance that 
between sessions disturbance will increase and the client may be at risk without the proper support. Um, that is a really tricky dynamic to navigate because there's so much trust embedded in the therapeutic dynamic. And EMDR kind of showcases that perhaps more than just regular talk therapy. Um, it reminds me of a, of a statistic, um, which is kind of funny to reduce it to a number, but of how, like what percentage of clients lie to their therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, this is a very vulnerable dynamic and to trust their attachment system, their information processing system to actually be on the same page with you, willing to go at the pace that you are. Um, these are all different circumstances that we could be on a very different page uh, than our clients are. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what that feels like for each of you to navigate, um, trusting your client to report in a way that is facilitative of this whole process. Um, well, okay. So it, it also like is contingent on the idea that a client even knows how to tell the truth about their yeah. own experience. Like there, there's just a remarkable amount of uh, assumption about people's ability to actually discern profound. Their, yeah. Like discern their own experience and then bring it into articulated communication to another, right. Uh, to be able to say things like, I can't handle this. That, I mean, that, that is a big deal for any of us to say, like, I can't handle this, what we're about to do. Not to mention, they've never done what we're about to do. So their ability to actually discern whether they're going to handle it well or not is pretty much 0%, right? So I I understand the intent, but what I find to be more true is that it's a little bit ridiculous to say, well, you just have to tell me the truth so I can make the right decisions. They're going to say, okay. But that doesn't in any way actually prepare them, right? Because we're talking about preparation. It doesn't prepare them to tell the truth, yeah. right? You're and talking about they should. <laughs> trust. Yeah. And this is the the quote or the, the, the script um, that she says in this. She says, all you need to do is tell me the truth. <laughs> Sorry. All you <laughs> need to do is tell the truth. <laughs> that was so funny. Like laughter crept into my voice. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. You so that I can make the proper choices. Yeah. Just give me accurate feedback about what is happening. Also, you're the one in control. If you need to stop, just let me know. Just tell me what is happening for you. The amount of justs and all you need, like, I don't know what that feels like to you guys, but to me, it really underestimates and invalidates the vulnerability that's embedded and assumed the client is able to handle or that you're even able to handle um, in this process. And again, I understand the the practicality of needing that statement. It's a tip of the hat to consent and autonomy and, yeah. Yeah. and explicit, you know, transparency, but my goodness, it come across, it comes across so curt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so much, like I'm feeling myself get like really activated or like passionate maybe about this because we give so much significance to the words that the client is communicating as is that the, the telling the truth from the spoken word, what we know will tell the truth is the body. And so if we aren't like factoring that in and giving space for like being attentive to that and teaching our clients that that actually matters, that that holds truth and how to even feel that and acknowledge it even if they don't know what it means like with that being a missing piece this concept or idea of like to tell the truth it means nothing right like we can say like yeah I'm ready to do this I've been wanting to do it for so long that could be true but without also saying like oh but your heart is pounding you're feeling closed off I have a knot in my stomach um, like all of these things like the truth that the body is holding about it without that piece, I think we're missing so much. And so that's where I think our role as the clinician is to become more skillful in how do we incorporate all of it and how do we give credit to and create space for and help support our clients and even being able to speak from what their body's experience is, which is a hurdle in and of itself to EMDR. But if we're not aware of like, that's a hurdle we have to overcome before we're going to really see authentic and safe 
processing, really safe, grounded processing. We've got to work through that piece. Um, it takes me to the other soapbox I was um, on is the pair or the section right before this section of adopting a clinical stance. One of the last statements is EMDR should interface with clinical skills, not substitute them. We don't talk about that enough. Um, <laughs> I think we feel this process of like, I have to let go of all mm -hmm. of these other like years of experience and intuition and instincts and, and skill sets that I've built in order to adhere to the protocol and the process. And in doing that, we're going to be uh, missing opportunities of how to really like read the room, how to really sense what's happening. If we get too distracted by this is the written protocol, this is what I'm supposed to do in the script, we're going to miss those pieces and have to rely on the client to tell the truth. And that's not going to happen well. Like we've got to be able to hold our clinical skills, our human skills, human relationship skills, and let that be a part of it. So there's just like so much that I want to say. I'm like writing things down so I don't forget my thoughts. But so one one piece of this that I think um, all of us have had numerous conversations with consultees about whether in certification or just one-on-one -on -one, um, is the issue of people feeling like they don't know how to do the EMDR process in a way that feels authentic and natural to them. And I think what like what we're trying to highlight by going through this text is that, you know, Shapiro said it must be authentic to you. Like you have to wrap it around your own personhood, your clinical skill, what you already know, what you already do. But where we've fallen short is in the guidance of how to bridge the gap between the protocol and the scripts and the authentic human practitioner. And, you know, I think that's what we get up to all the time of like trying to bridge that gap. Um, but what I want to highlight is that that's not us going against what Shapiro said. That's us agreeing with her and really working to do the next layer of, you know, conversation about, but how do we do that? And so for, for practitioners that are still in that space of practicing outside of authenticity, meaning they're using the scripts, but it doesn't really feel like theirs yet. Um, like, I hope that people feel encouraged to keep working towards making it their own, which sometimes means changing words which sometimes means adding things or leaving things out. It means collaborating with her clients to figure out what's really going to work, um, that that's what we were told to do. Like this is what EMDR is meant to be. Strict adherence to the script is not being, um, well, it's not following fidelity of the EMDR process. Fidelity is adaptation. So maybe we're not that new age EMDR. We're actually from the <laughs> you think. <laughs> We're, maybe <laughs> we're adding we're adding the 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 bridge conversation. We need a different word than fundamentalist. <laughs> I knew that would be provoking in this crowd. <laughs> well, both new age and fundamentalism. Oh <laughs> new age fundamentalism. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, it's, is there a thing called like? Can I be a neo fundamentalist EMDR practitioner? Like, is that a thing? Sure, it is today. I claim it. Okay, so so I had two other things that feel like practical parts of this conversation around. But how do we do it, right? So in this conversation around, okay, but the client just needs to tell us the truth so that we can make good decisions. I think I'd I'd like us to talk about how have we each figured out how to modify that conversation, but still include it in a way. Um, and so I'll offer two pieces that I, you know, personally have found really helpful. One is that part of preparation is treating affect phobia first so that clients have a lot of practice in going into that internal space, navigating it, feeling it, and then practicing expressing it safely to the other. Um, so I consider treating affect phobias, you know, uh, treating the the fear of feeling sensations in our body as an essential part of the preparation process for many clients. The other thing, and Bridger and I were just on a certification call together where we taught about this, is the idea of rolling consent. Mm -hmm. That right in the middle of uh, a phase three and a phase four process, we can be continuing to ask for consent as the client has new experience, because to give consent at the beginning only means that they're giving consent to what they're already aware of. 
And so rolling consent is this idea is that as new experiences emerge, we can ask again and help the client check in again to see if they actually feel safe to be doing what we're doing. And this can be super simple. It doesn't mean that we get out a new form, right? It, it, it is as simple as a question of, does it feel safe to notice that, right? And if they say yes, then we do. And if they say, I don't know, do you, do you want to see if it feels safe? But let me know, right? So, or do we need to step out into a bit of resourcing and prep before we come back in? So just a, a subtle adjustment to the protocol of we can ask for consent again when, when a new thing emerges, when for the first time they have a big emotive experience and it's like, oh my God, that got intense. Does it feel safe to keep going? Does it feel safe to notice that feeling? Does it feel safe to notice what you just said, right? Like, I hate my mom. If that's the first time they've ever said said that, does it feel safe to notice that? <laughs> um, so th this concept of like, keep asking for, for consent all along the way feels much more honoring to how it actually rolls out than something like at the beginning saying, you need to tell me the truth. I think that's I a, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I love both of those and the only I think thing I would add into that is like also the acknowledgement of the complexities of our nervous systems that it's not that there's a truth and that there's a lie. It's that it's so complex that both could be true at the same time. And I, my style in this is parts work is to say there may be a part of you that's absolutely ready or that, yes, I feel safe and, and capable of that. And another part that says, no, I'm not. Um, and I think that can be expressed in a lot of different language, but just acknowledging like the, the nuance and the complexity of us as human beings, that it's not as simple as like one stance of like truth or untruth. With that, what was coming up for me, Melissa, as you were describing that idea of rolling consent, it offers a co-regulated alternative to the insistence on self-control that is kind of littered throughout the text where it's like you client need to be able to handle your stuff. And so here's all these resources to basically help you ground quote unquote. And while well-intentioned and, and definitely a useful product of the work we're doing, expecting it from the client in themselves, I think is counterproductive to the work we're trying to do. It, it, it almost without explanation can um, reignite this insistence on themselves for uh, I need to be able to handle my stuff. And if I can't, I've got to figure out how to put it back in the box in a way. Um, right. So with this idea of checking in, yes, we're trusting their ability to even understand what we're saying by safety. And does it feel like we could keep going? Do you, you know, autonomy checking questions, there's still opportunity at each turn to maybe get to the point where the client says, Hey, I know we're like eight sessions in and I haven't ever said anything, but I don't know what the hell you're talking about when you ask me if I feel safe or do I notice anything or like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that rolling consent idea gives them multiple opportunities to meet us there to where we can learn together. What do we mean when we say safe or when we have this invitation to keep going to deepen our experience of the sensation without that you're kind of just trusting the bookends of the process to check the box of yeah we activated we processed we grounded and integrated I, the the lived experience of doing this with clients over and over at the beginning i feel like as a new emdr clinician i often felt like the scripts must know something i didn't know that somehow there was some like inherent wisdom in the words, like these are the magic words. And if we say them, then something is going to happen. <laughs> and over time realizing like, no, the magic is not in the scripts, right? The magic is in the presence of two people focused on, on this goal together uh, and the way that we meet each other in that. And I think the scripts can support us, but really kind of letting go of the idea that somehow those scripts are more, uh, well, hold more wisdom than you do as a clinician or even just as a human being feeling your way through this process. Um, and so I think, you know, in general, all of us feel a lot of freedom at this point to modify any script we encounter. Um, but we all, I think, modify it based on the same principle of when we know the why behind what we're doing, 
we can still modify grounded in something that um, is a good clinical guide. We're not just making stuff up that feels fun, right? Or feels interesting. There is a reason behind every modification we make, um, but we modify a lot. I, I really feel like that is where the scripts have their utility is it's a way of teaching but it seems like, you know, at every five-day training or two-part, three-day trainings, there's this message of, like, read the book and then come to the training. It's just not a practical thing. So many people never read the book. But it's like in the training, you get the scripts, you get the process as a way to, like, learn an avenue for practicing these deeper messages and, like, the idea behind all of this. And But we miss that piece. And so then we think it is the script that has the wisdom. And you're exactly right. Like, no, that's one way of doing it that gives us a template for how to function in that way with a client. But there are so many ways that we could modify that, adjust it, recreate it, that still adheres to fidelity of the the process. Yeah. So this chapter includes quite a few scripts. So I'm curious if you guys want to visit some of those together and talk about like how do we modify those? <laughs> we don't. We don't say these words. We say things like this. Uh, but I think that we all kind of make adjustments. So on the bottom of uh, one fifteen, there's a script where the purpose of the script is to explain the theory of EMDR to the client. And so I'll read the script, and then we can kind of talk about, um, yeah, what? How do we do this? Because we we mm. don't use this verbatim. So what Shapiro recommends as a potential script is often when something traumatic happens, it seems to get locked in the brain with the original picture, sounds, thoughts, feelings, and so on. Since the experience is locked there, it continues to be triggered whenever a reminder comes up. It can be the basis for a lot of discomfort and sometimes a lot of negative emotions such as fear and helplessness that we can't seem to control. These are really the emotions connected with the old experience that are being triggered. The eye movements we use in EMDR seem to unlock the system and allow your brain to process the experience. That may be what is happening in REM or rapid eye movement sleep when our most intense dreaming takes place. The eye movements appear to be involved during the processing of unconscious material. The important thing to remember is that it is your own brain that will be doing the healing and that you are the one in control. From that script. So that script is under the category of explaining the theory. What I think is an important, like, is we're going to go through several of these, like, sections of what does preparation need to entail. A client who's about to engage in this kind of work needs to understand why. Like, what is it? Why are we even doing this? What's the theory behind it? And I think explaining a theory this robust in just a few short sentences is a hard thing to do, which is why that script is a nice tool to say, hey, this grabs a lot of the most important pieces and condenses it down. But if you understand the theory from your training or from your own research or reading, you can explain it in any way that feels honoring to you and what will be meaningful to your client. For some clients, read that and they're zoned out within seconds. Like none of that matters to me. I don't even know what you're saying. Um, so finding a way to modify that in what helps them understand the why behind this enough. For other, they're going to say, wait, tell me more. I want to know more on this piece and this piece. And why is that uh, uh, important? And so it's it's something that should be so adaptable. I give out different YouTube links, Andrea pamphlets. Um, we have podcast episodes on this. Sometimes it's just a question and answer. What do you want to know about it? Do you do you desire to know like why it's effective and what's going on? And it can be very conversational, but that's just a way of like helping us to hold space for they need to understand the why behind what we're doing as well. Yeah. Whatever your method is, I and I know this is my bias and to some degree unrealistic, but I would really recommend memorizing as much of this as you can or making it as native to you because, Jen, you mentioned it, but a majority of people, when somebody pulls something out and starts reading it, for one, you as a reader, we're not typically 
very good at reading something in an engaging way, like out loud. We read fast and we don't really engage or add emphasis in the way that is designed for the listener to make meaning of. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is when people are listening to something being read, they kind of click into that, like you said, Jen, that zoned out um, kind of space where they're not really listening with their feelings. They're following procedure, waiting for a question, um, you know, trying to respond, quote unquote, appropriately uh, to somebody in authority or in a point of recognition. So um, in, in whatever way, I understand there's different challenges to memorizing things for people. And so it's not like a hard and fast rule, but I think, Jen, your point of making it as native to you and as relationally um, uh, applicable to your client is uh, a way to really make the most of that explaining the theory portion of preparation. That feels equally true for like the following section on testing eye movements. They give us a, a nice option of a script there too. But also what if you just test it? <laughs> like what if you just yeah. naturally in conversations and do you want to see what our options are? Like, let's try these out, feel what it's like, ask me questions. Um, what if you just do it in your most natural form and the script can help kind of teach you so you don't skip things or you're considering each piece. But I think in both of those sections, the script's more of a placeholder to say, don't forget about this, but it can be done in just a natural relational way. Yes. Well, and I, I, I like this point of when we do it relationally, it does a better job of actually evoking authentic questions from the client hmm. versus when we're script reading. I really agree with you, Bridger, that it kind of evokes this uh, student teacher dynamic um, where like asking personal questions just doesn't really feel right. It's like, well, I should just be able to comprehend what you just said, teacher. <laughs> right. And move on. Right. Um, and yeah, so, do you have any questions? No. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No. <laughs> it's like, I'm only asking if I absolutely have to. Um, and so doing, doing it relationally, I think, um, offers the space for, for the client to really be curious, um, about their own experience. And then the other thing is, is that if we think that we have completed explaining the situation by reading this script, then we're going to not be as likely to ask again, do you have any questions later on after they've had a little bit more experience? My favorite way of introducing EMDR is to do EMDR and then talk about what just happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, we have to give a little bit of information, but there's a lot of clients that have heard something from a friend or have a family member that's gone through it or they've seen it on TV. So they have a vague notion of what it is. And they really just want to try it, especially if you have clients that are the kind of person that like how they learned to ride a bike by getting on the bike. They didn't, they didn't want a step-by-step. -step. They were the kid that like just wanted to try it for themselves and, and figure it out as they went. I often ask my clients about their learning style and then kind of tailor this process to their preference. You know, I'll say things like we can kind of just dive in and go for it and, and you know, ask questions along the way. Or I can give you a little bit of info and then we can proceed when you feel like you have enough uh, awareness of what's going to happen. I would say 75% of people say, let's just do it. I know, I know enough. I just want to try it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. That also works well with my personality um, to, to wing it and then clean up the mess afterwards. Um, and so I think knowing yourself <laughs> and knowing the clients that you tend to work with, but then also giving them options right there. Like how do they want to learn about EMDR? What works best for them? Yeah, and the the reality of like EMDR is so much more well known now, as you're saying, Melissa. Like they probably know someone, or they've maybe experienced it themselves, or they watched the Grey's Anatomy episode, right? <laughs> like whatever it is that like expression all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then it's like, hey, we could actually talk about it through those experiences too, rather than scripted. We could talk about the show that you saw it on, or the movie, or the friend that you had that did it. Um, they're going to have some level of exposure, possibly. It's not as often where it's a completely foreign concept to people. And that really changes things. The fact that we're, we're rarely having to start from scratch with people anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a portion here that I wondered if we could get into a little bit, but I don't want to skip ahead if there's something that you guys want to talk about. I would love to touch on her section about negative cognitions. But before we knew that, was there anything else that you guys felt drawn to? Well, so 
I'm in part conscious of the time and <clears throat> there's a, a portion in the describing the model um, or sorry, setting expectations um, on page 122 that I do want to touch on um, just as it really, again, answers a question I get a lot in consultation. Um, so for the the listener, we're, we're kind of glancing over creating a calm, safe place and resourcing. We'll, we'll talk about that elsewhere, give it more time in a general kind of resource sense. And then in describing the model, there's a couple scripts in the text that again, uh, we encourage you to memorize or otherwise find your native way of describing what is the point of prompting positive and negative, pairing that with the image of the most disturbing part and actually seeking resolution. Really, AIP is fleshed out in in one way by the idea of linking negative material to positive material. And so that's covered in that section. But in the setting expectations portion, there's a comment or a question that I get a lot in consultation, which is, so when we say notice that or go with that or um, just notice, what are we really talking about? And what do we do if the client says, I'm not getting anything? Um, so first, I want to kind of just read um, the the script, and then we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like to um explain that in a more native way, or what do we do when they say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not noticing anything. As we process the information and digest the old events, pictures, sensations, or emotions may arise, but your job is just to notice them, just to let them happen. Imagine that you're on a train and the scenery is passing by. Just notice the scenery without trying to grab hold of it or make it significant. Remember, if you need to take a rest, just hold up your hand or look away. We'll start by asking you to focus on a target. Then I will ask you to follow my fingers. We can insert there like preferred BLS type. After we do that for a while, we will stop and talk about anything that comes up. You can't keep a picture steady while the eye movements are going on, so don't try. When we talk, you just need to give me feedback on what is happening. Sometimes things will change and sometimes they won't. I may ask if something else comes up. Sometimes it will and sometimes it won't. There are no quote-unquote supposed tos in this process. So just tell me what is happening without judging whether it should be happening or not. Just let whatever happens happen. Any questions? Nope. Nope. There's the reader <laughs> response. Good job, yeah. Jen. <laughs> yeah, this idea of just let whatever happens happen. Um, I think needs a little bit of clarification because I, I, I think still there's some dynamic that gets confused or lost in translation when you go from an interpersonal engagement to mm -hmm. instructing the client to have an individual engagement with themselves. Um, and an internal engagement. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and Melissa, you alluded to this earlier that that assumes that the client knows how to do that. Um, especially knows how to do that on command <laughs> in a way of like, tell me what you're experiencing internally. Uh, that assumes that I have language to even put to that. Um, so yeah, what comes up for you both when hearing this idea of what does noticing really mean? The visual that I was having when you said that is the internal feeling of like that trust fall where like someone's going to catch you, but you just like, let whatever happens happen. That's a great analogy. Yeah. There's so much trust that's required to do that. And the terrifying, like falling feeling and hoping that like I'll get caught and, and, you know, it'll work out as it's supposed to. I think we have to acknowledge the privilege it is to be able to do that. Like that's not normal. Totally. That's not the normative. That's a privileged spot to have enough internalized resources, enough external trust enough internal trust to be able to like do that. And I think that, you know, that this prompt can even get us into a place where maybe they're falling, but they're kind of like looking behind them or like grabbing onto something like with the metaphor, but we can go through that and say, it, it may not just whatever happens happens. Like it might feel more forced at the beginning, it might be like, what am I, what am I supposed to be thinking of again? That's a question I get all the time. Yes. What am I supposed to be thinking of again? 
allow them to like have something to anchor them in that. Why don't you just think of this one piece, right? Like we, we might have to anchor them in that process and not leave it so vast and so open, give them a bit more of a narrowed focus, maybe more direction in where to go and saying that as we repeat that process more and more, their, their systems might learn more trust for the like, whatever happens, happens, and that's okay. Um, but I see many times our first few sessions of reprocessing, it's okay for it to not feel like that open, just notice. Like I'll give a little bit more direction in those early targets. I give a little bit more narrow focus and I'm a much more involved participant in it to help guide them in that until their systems learn that they can trust me and trust themselves to do that. Yeah, I I think this is like one of the questions about why I feel so drawn to doing that uh, kind of affect phobia work as prep, because it really addresses this issue. Um, sometimes it's not even a phobia. Sometimes it's a lack of practice, right? Yeah. Internal interoceptive awareness with the ability to track our own experience is not something that we just naturally have. A lot of us do have it. A lot of us have had, you know, interactions, relationships, early childhood experiences that gave us some ability to do that. There's also a lot of clients where they did not at all. Um, any client that had a significant lack of attunement in their early attachment world is going to have some struggle with this. Uh, now, some kids overcome it through imagination, right? And they develop an internal world of their own. Um, but some come into therapy with very little ability to actually be in their own internal selves and know how to navigate that terrain. And so, you know, I, I've mentioned so many times uh, the uh, process called Genlin's focusing. And this this is one of the modalities that I think is such a, a help um, as preparation in EMDR, because the whole point of that practice is teaching people how to be in their internal terrain in a way that promotes engagement with subconscious material mm -hmm. and really lays out a step-by-step -step how to of like, how do we get in there? <laughs> like, and also where are we going? Right. And what is relevant when we're in that sphere? And then what do we do when we find something like a sensation, right? Okay. What happens next? Or what happens if there's um, a comment, like I feel blank, right. Or I feel numb, Right. It's so interesting to me how stumped we get. And the truth is numbness is an extraordinary sensation. Right. There's so much there. But because we as clinicians don't always know how to be in that internal terrain and sometimes our clients don't know, we can get easily either sidetracked or befuddled by how do we navigate once we're in there. Um, so if that's an area that feels like, you know, you're running into that a lot with clients, like there's a lot of really helpful processes and modalities that look at exactly this question. But I, I agree, Bridger, like we can't take for granted that our clients know how to do this. Yeah. There's a, a third part to this where you highlighted perhaps some of the origins of challenge within mm -hmm. not learning how to make sense of your internal world. <clears throat> I think one of the other pitfalls of that attachment deficit is in the ability to then communicate that interpersonally. In our in our SIP two training, healing the fragmented self, we we do an exercise that really kind of activates this fear of we ask the the participants to identify who they are just to themselves, like who am I, and then we invite them to explain that to their neighbor and to watch to observe like that funneling experience of. Oh gosh, I was already struggling to really find a meaningful way of understanding myself, but then to say it to somebody else, there's a ton that I'm going to leave out, or there's a ton that I'm going to all of a sudden throw away all of my internal processing and just use because it's a convenient, you know, explanation of what I should be to somebody else. But that that crossing of the the social membrane is another developmental skill that we have to learn. And if we have an environment that's not open to that type of practice of knowing my internal felt sense and then learning to communicate it interpersonally, that's going to be a real challenge for that client that they're probably oblivious to because the strategies we develop throughout our life in response to that deficit numb us out to those experiences and make it to where we avoid interpersonal context of, of sharing or being transparent about our internal experience. I also think that 
and, and we're not going to go into this today because, you know, there's plenty of time to where we are going to talk about blocked processing, right? Like, mm-hmm. what do we do when things get stuck? Um, but th- this is kind of highlighting one of the main reasons why we get stuck, which is us as clinicians and certainly the clients don't always know what the relevant stuff is. Yeah. There's a lot of potential rabbit trails. <laughs> And being able to discern um, what is a valuable thing to focus on and what are the interweaves that are really going to guide us to the core of what we're working on. How do we choose the relevant stuff to focus on, um, I think, is one of the the growth edges for all of us. And we get better and better in that as we develop. Um, But all of that is really pointing to this challenge of we have to be information processing trackers and we have to to some degree, teach our clients how to track their own process. And so if that's an area that like feels like a brand new idea, that's one of the spots that we as clinicians can really develop to help us be better EMDR clinicians and certainly um, more calm EMDR clinicians and feeling like we really know how to help and what to focus on. I want to propose that we save the rest of the chapter for... (laughs) We're not fitting into 10 minutes, <laughs> the assessment portion. And I think you asked us at the beginning, can we do this whole chapter? And Bridger and I were like, yeah, sure, we can. <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> we did good, though. We did. We I, I think we covered more in that first section than we anticipated, which is good. But I, coming into the next episode where we will go into the assessment portion, um, I do want it to have plenty of space and time for us to break down each component of assessment because I think a lot of those, and we have other episodes that talk on this as well, but um, looking at each of them individually and their significance helps us to you know, set up assessment to really do its job well and not just do it for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just remembered. We did an episode with uh, evidence-based therapists <laughs> about information processing. So if that piqued your curiosity, oh, yeah. go for the episode. It was a lovely episode. I, I just re-listened to it because I uh, quoted you and Caleb uh, for the body and mind training that Caleb and I are writing. And oh, nice. I, I have a quote about information processing theory in there from the host of the evidence-based therapist. So. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be a good review if you're curious to, to remember more about info processing theory. And that, yeah, does go into uh, some neuroscience. So Get your high waist waders on if you're if you're talented with neuroscience. Just a skosh, a pinch, if yeah. you will. Um, All right, everybody. Yep. Feel complete for the day. Mm-hmm. As much as there's time for. That's true. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll be back next time with phase three assessment. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.